0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: So welcome to our monthly Journal Club edition of JOSPT Insights, where typically we take a research article and and use it as a springboard for interviews with authors, educators, and clinical experts. In this episode, however, we're departing slightly from our theme in order to sit down with Dr. Stephen Camper to speak about evidence-based practice, how to choose the articles you read to inform your practice, as well as a quick refresher on some basic research terms to help you appraise the articles that you read. My name is Dan Chapman, and I'm a physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland, as well.
1: And our guest today is Dr. Steve Camper. Dr. Camper treated clinically as a physio before completing his PhD at the George Institute for Global Health in 2011, and afterwards spent three years at the VU University in Amsterdam as a postdoctoral fellow. Steve's published over 150 articles and presented his work over 60 times in more than 10 countries. He's a senior editor of JOSPT, and he is currently a professor within the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Steve developed and writes the Evidence and Practice series in JOSPT, which focuses on helping educate clinicians on how to better understand and read PT literature in short, easily digestible summaries, and we highly recommend you check it out. Steve, welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you very much. Uh, before we before we really dive in, I wanted to ask you a quick question about physiotherapy evidence database that you're involved in, otherwise known as Pedro. Um, to me, it's been a great resource that allows me to quickly find a database of high quality research articles that have been vetted by people such as yourself. But I was curious as to to you know how did you get involved with this and how did this whole thing start?
3: Yeah, so 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 Pedro was a. Uh developed in 1999 and and that was a group of of physios at the University of Sydney who who were sort of saying, we're starting to to teach our students that what they really need to do is is go and look at literature and understand what's being published in order to, to inform what they do. But how do they do that? Um, and, and, and so, the, so the, the sort of brief was, to well, how do we collect all the information which might be relevant to physio, physios together in one place? But, yeah, so, the, the, I mean, the goal is, is to provide a, a, a really simple way for people to identify research um, that's relevant to their practice and relevant to the effectiveness of treatments. People might not realise the sort of extent. There's forty or 50,000 or something um, studies which are indexed on Pedro most of them are RCTs. All of the RCTs are rated for, for method quality. I think it helps um, clinicians get a bit of a, um, a sense of how likely what it is they're reading is free from bias or at lower risk of bias. Um, it's used in over 200 countries over a year. So, Associate Professor Ann Mosley is is really the driving force behind that.
1: What I love about it is that I get really quick updates every month that are that are focused and customized right to my interest so you can choose sports orthopedics neuro pediatrics whatever it is that you're interested in uh and get those right into your inbox and so going off of trying to choose the right articles um researchers are busy clinicians everyone's busy so when you sit down with an article or two what what are you doing to what are you looking at to to appraise the article and make sure that that you're, you're spending your time reading the article that's right for the question that you have?
3: The most important things in my view actually happen before you look at the methods. The number one thing is you need to know what the question is. You mm-hmm. should be able to read to, the question typically should appear at the end of the introduction, but you should be able to read through the introduction and maybe the start of the methods and go, this is the question. The question is blah, 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 question mark. Um, and, and, and that should be one to two sentences. Um, if you can't do that, you cannot interpret the results of that study regardless of how good it is. And, and then you've got to say, okay, do I care about the, an- the answer to this, this question? So that, that's the thing. So, so the, first, the first most important thing is what is the question, do I care about it? I, I, if you don't pass that hurdle, don't, don't read on. The second gets a little bit more technical, and, 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 and this, is, this is around determining whether your question is what I'd call descriptive, predictive or causal. So a descriptive question is about understanding the landscape of things. Right? So that might be a survey. What do people think about stuff? How many people have this view or that view? Um, it might be something about the nature of patients who turn up in a particular setting. Okay? It might be about the case mix. It might, be, it might be qualitative studies. So they're descriptive of people's people's views. Right. And So they're, they're all descriptive questions. The next type of questions are predictive questions. So I have some information now. Does it tell me about something that's going to happen in the future? And so you have predictive models or risk models or this sort of stuff. The idea is to get some information about the future. That's different to knowing what to do with that information. You know, let's say you're trying to predict who will get better after a whiplash injury. And you have a predictive model and it's got five things in it, and it's got pain intensity, it's got disability score, it's got depression score, it's got compensation status, and it's got, I don't know, sleep. That might be a good model to tell you who's more or less likely to, to recover. Those sort of studies, though, they don't tell you that I should go and focus on sleep or depression. And this is a really key difference between predictive and causal studies, okay, and, and, and it's one which is gets lost all the time. So that's it, it, it's really important that you're able to to sort these predictive studies from causal studies. So causal studies tell us something about a factor which causes an outcome. So and so, a treatment studies are causal studies. Right? So if you give people paracetamol versus a placebo, you're looking for the causal effect of giving someone placebo. Uh, sorry, paracetamol uh, versus placebo on outcome. So that's a, that's a causal question. So that's the second thing you need to do. Once you've got a question, you need to say, okay, here's, my, here's the question that the study is, is looking at. Is it a descriptive question? Is it a predictive question? Or is it a causal question? Only once you've done that, then you look at the methods.
2: Let's go through and actually. This ties into all of your evidence and practice stuff. Um, you yep. provide a wonderful recap of all of the things that maybe some of us, definitely not me, learned in school and maybe need a refresher on. So it's a it's mm-hmm. a, it's in JOSBT. It's it's like a one to two page review of these different research topics and concepts. This evidence and practice series, and it really is. It's it's nice to like keep everything fresh. You're able to like put it into like the short, little, compact, digestible, really understandable form. Um, but I wanted to do just like a speed round. Steve, you're going to have one minute. I'm timing you and absolutely nothing will happen at the end of that minute. Um, <laughs> give your even smaller, even shorter um, description of what these are. Okay, so first up is bias.
3: All right, studies give us an estimate of what will ha- what happens in a population of people bias causes that estimate to be different to what happens what will happen in the in the general population
2: okay also what other like um what other things can cause bias
3: now bias happens because the people involved in the study so that's researchers clinicians and the and the participants have a horse in the race they have an interest in finding one thing or another. That's why bias happens.
2: Next up, randomization, how it influences research article.
3: All right, so randomization means that the person putting people in one group or another don't get a choice, okay? That choice is determined by a random process. Really important because it gives us confidence that the groups are balanced on all the factors that we think might cause outcome except for the causal factor that we're interested in, which is treatment versus another treatment.
1: Reliability and validity. And do different uh, one minute each or...
2: No, pressure's on.
3: All right, so now we're talking about measurement of outcome. And, and so this is how you tell whether something is more uh, effective than another. So reliability means that if you, measure, if you use a particular measure... If you measure the same thing repeatedly, you get the same score. Or if different people measure that thing, they get the same score. That's reliability. Validity is does the way you're measuring something measure what you think you're measuring? I talk about constructs, which is a, a, an idea, so function might be a construct, pain might be a construct, quality of life might be a, function, a, a construct, depression might be a construct, and measurement instruments or measurement tools. And so they're the things that we use visual analog scale and a um, Rebro, HADS, or whatever, ODI, whatever it is. We use that tool to access the construct. Typically, we call the tool the measure or the, or, or the instrument. And so that's what we need to be valid. And validity means those two things line up. It means the tool actually does the job of accessing that construct.
2: How about effect sizes?
3: All right, effect sizes. This is where it's at. So 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 actually what we we're, what we're, we're never really interested in whether so if we're talking about treatment effectiveness we're never really interested in whether there's a difference between our treatment and our comparator. What we're interested in is how big that difference is. That's an effect size.
2: Okay, and confidence intervals.
3: Okay, confidence intervals, the simplified version of it because they're more complicated than they look, but the, all you need to know about the version is that gives us the range of plausible effects. So we, we, we conduct, uh, going back to bias, we, we conduct um, a study on a sample. So that's a small group of people who belong to a population. The effect size that we get from a, a study is an estimate of the effect in that population. So we get it from the sample, but we want to apply it to the population. That process means that there's imprecision or there's uncertainty around what it will be in the population. The confidence interval reflects that uncertainty. Okay, so, so we're saying if we've got an a, a, you know, effect size of five points and an ODI, we've got a confidence interval from three to eight, what we're saying is in the sample the effect size was five, in the population, it could be anywhere from three to eight. And, 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 and at some point, that could get so wide that that, do, that study doesn't provide you any useful information. So in that case, if it's from minus one to, to 12, you can say, well, it's likely that you're going to be better off with this one. And there's other things which will go into that information. But if that confidence interval went from 25 to minus 25, that study hasn't given you any information about that 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 treatment contrast where the the, the bounds are is, is just where you, is is the frame for your conversation with your patient or the frame for your the information that you're taking to inform your treatment decision
1: i like that the way you put that as the confidence interval is the frame yeah all right last two p-values
3: P-values, forget about them. they're gone they're dead tell me how you really
1: feel
0: steve
3: yeah <laughs> uh, yeah well not yet but they're they're sick. Um, no, look, they're, they're, they have their place. Um, they're, they're not useful in trying to interpret the effectiveness of one treatment versus another. And, and so the, their interpretation is disastrous. It's, they're a horrible thing to try and conceptualise and they don't give you the information that you need. I, I want to...
1: I wanna- break the rules of, of the speed round. You
2: have broken every <laughs> rule of the speed round.
1: <laughs> I uh, but I, I know, I just know that there are students out there. There are people out there. I know I was a student not long ago uh, who just put a ton of work into understanding p-values or uh, trying to understand uh, p-values uh, more related to my experience. Um, and so I think they might just need a little bit more on that.
3: A really important shortcoming of p-values and for me even of itself a sufficient reason why they don't are not useful is that they tell you nothing about the size of the difference between groups so a smaller p value doesn't tell you there's a bigger difference and a bigger p value doesn't tell you there's a smaller difference they just do not do that job and as i said actually what you want to know is how big the difference is between the between the treatment and the comparison because if it for example if it's a if you've got a, 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 an intensive, you know, three times a week, quads exercises, you've got to come into a gym versus walking 30 minutes a day, if the difference in those is, I don't know, something small on a strength measure, it matters. It, it matters whether that's a big difference or a small difference, right? Because if it's a small difference, it's likely that you and the patient and everyone else, or if it's a very costly intervention for something like that, it's likely the patient go, well, I'll just go for a walk. Um, and, and the p-value doesn't tell you how big that difference is. That's where the effect size and confidence intervals are a vastly superior way of interpreting the difference between groups in a, in a, um, in a comparative study. The, the p-value does not help you there.
2: Last one, Dan, take it away.
1: MCID. So,
3: so this is, okay, so this is talking about the effect size. Right? So, so we've got a difference between groups. And this is trying to work out, is that difference big enough to matter? And when we say matter, we say matter to a patient. And so that's clinically important. The difference bit is the difference between group. Minimally, is it has to be bigger than that for it to matter. That's the concept of And the concept is pretty clear and pretty, pretty straightforward. The devil is, is trying to work out what these are. And, and and so we tend to think of them as a property of the measure. So we might say the minimally important, minimally clinically important difference on a pain, NRS pain scale is 1.5. On uh, Roland Morris, it's three. Problem is, they are absolutely not a property of the measure because there's a whole heap of things which need to go into that decision from an individual's point of view. One of them we touched on before: how intensive is the intervention? How costly is the intervention? How much risk is associated with the intervention and the comparator. All these things should affect that minimally clinically important difference, right? So if if you've got a very risky intervention, you know, if you've got, I don't know, a surgery which could lead you a paraplegic, you want that to be bloody effective to not getting, compared to not getting that ser- surgery, right? Before you take that risk on, you wanna say the estimate of this effectiveness is huge. If you've got an intervention which is not very risky, not very costly, not very difficult, easy to do, maybe it's, I don't know, paracetamol. Yes, there's risk and all that sort of stuff. But if you've got that compared to, I don't know, an exercise program three times a week, maybe some people want to say, well, yeah, I'll take, I'll take a pill once a day, if the minis, minimal, and, and, and I'm happy to, for that to make a difference of you what. Know? So, so that's just a treatment contrast Bit of things and, and, and risk and so on. The other thing is that we know is this differs for different people. So so it depends on you know someone might like exercise. Oh yeah, cool, great. Um, and, and and so that will vary. That will that will shift where their MCID is. clinically. In, in my view, I think uh, a, a someone reading a study and looking to as to whether they should put this you know into the practice. You don't need to worry too much about that. Because you can just go to your patient and say, "All right, here's the estimate. What do you reckon?
1: Is this worth it for you?
3: Yeah, is this worth it for you, I and mean, here's what it's going to cost. this is what's going to involve this is a, these are the other options. This is the estimate of your 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 benefit or or, or or of this versus this, that sort of thing. How about it? Do you want it or not?
1: And so Steve, there is probably to put it generously, a, a little bit of a, a rift between the wider PT or within the wider PT community where you know, some people are saying that evidence-based practice is the future of of physical therapy, and some that, that that look at it more as you know kind of turning us into cookbook medicine. So as someone who's been a clinician and a researcher, what's your perspective on, on this discussion?
3: We have to make a decision about how much faith we put in this piece of information. What the risk of bias does, it, it puts us puts the study on this sort of continuum of this is really highly high risk of bias. And probably if you go beyond some threshold, you might go, you know what, the information is worthless, don't read. But everywhere above that threshold, you're just putting more or less confidence in that piece of information rather than saying, I'm going to disregard it or I'm going to swallow it whole. And this is part of the nuance of, of, of evidence-based practice, which is difficult. It's really hard because it's about how much confidence I should put in this piece of information. And so, and so that's what we're trying to get at. With with EBP, in my view, the EBP is is about or should be, if done well, be about more than just research evidence. I think what it implies by by saying okay, there's this research information, research evidence, which is just a source of information. According to how at risk of bias it is, we should weight how much faith we put in it, and that should determine. How, how to what degree we, we incorporate those findings. To my mind, that's no different to any other sort of information. So you have information that you learnt when you are at school. You have information that you learnt on the weekend PD course. You have information that uh, you read online. You have information from seeing your previous patients. You have information from books that you read. You have information from watching your colleagues. You have information from conversations you have all these sorts of information and all these sources of information are going into your treatment decision. Research evidence is just another piece of information. And, and to my mind, if this whole thing worked well, all these information, pieces of information are assessed for risk of bias. The difference with research evidence is we have this framework for understanding that risk. The problem with all the other sorts of information is we just do with them as we do. And, and we don't, we don't, subject them to, to a, a, a sort of a process of going, well, how reliable is this? How reliable is that? You know, uh, what what's the risk of bias associated with my clinical experience, associated with uh, the information that I got from a conversation with my senior colleague, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I like the term clinician scientist here. And, 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 and so a clinician scientist is a clinician who thinks about information scientifically as a scientist would. And so a scientist is forever thinking about where's the source of information, how much can I rely on it, you know, and, and you know, what's the uncertainty which is, which is surrounding this piece of information? And that's what a scientist does, and they do that in order to get an unbiased as possible answer to a particular question. It would be great if we could have an equivalent framework which we could Put on top of recall of past um, patients who look a bit similar. For me, this is that's where all this starts. That's where the whole EBP thing starts. So this is all about taking information from multiple sources. And, and, and to me, this is this is why the you know the, there's 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 a one of the criticisms about EBP is that it you know forces everyone into this cookbook approach. Is a complete nonsense. Could, to me, this would make things way harder. It's much much easier just to ignore one source of information. That's just one less variable you have to you have to include in your decision. So you need you need to take on that source of information and integrate it with everything else. I, I think what I'm talking about here is even harder because then you're sa- then I'm saying okay, you need to be doing this with all these other sources of information.
1: You put a lot of nuance into that discussion that I haven't necessarily heard before, which I really like, and that is valuing both you know your discussion with your colleagues valuing your your own clinical experience bringing in your education bringing in research right but there are varying degrees of confidence that you put in all of these different factors that all work together to bring you to a certain clinical treatment decision. I think that's that's a really valuable and also an inclusive way to look at it where you're not just writing off a, a certain segment of the, the the wider PT community. So thank you for that perspective. Um, for those who want to get in touch with you, where can they best find you on social media? If you
3: Google Stephen Camper at University of Sydney, you'll find me or you can email me directly at stephen.camper at sydney.edu or you can get me on twitter at stevecamper1
2: just you you're like your passion about the research and all of <laughs> and all your stuff it's so fun to read um so I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to come on and and just like share that passion with us
3: uh, thank you very much that's no, been fun i very much enjoy chatting with you and if there's anything else please get in contact
1: and so that's our show for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Camper again for coming on and chatting with us, as well as Drs. Claire Arden, Paul Blazy, and then Rachel German for their contributions to this episode.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher,